Hello, welcome to episode ten of the WarPod, the official podcast of the Remote Warfare Program, part of the Oxford Research Group. The Remote Warfare Program is a London-based research initiative focusing on remote warfare, the trend where states support local and regional forces on the front lines rather than deploying large numbers of their own troops. I'm Megan Carlson Peterson, a research and policy officer at the Remote Warfare Program. In this episode, I'll be joined by my colleague Liam Walpole, policy manager, as well as Josh Arnold Forster, who was special advisor to Defense Secretary John Reid in 2005-2006, and is a senior advisor at Hanover Communications. We'll be discussing the Integrated Security, Defense, and Foreign Policy Review, which, luckily for those of us who discuss it often, has simply come to be known as the Integrated Review. So, Liam, can you give a quick introduction to the Integrated Review and its importance for the Remote Warfare Program? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's quite strange. I'm starting off the discussion. We've got someone with us who uh, is obviously an expert in all these things. Uh, but I suppose, actually, we only after the last couple of days, we understand a bit more about what this review is going to focus on uh, and the parameters of the review. Uh, but effectively, this is going to be an all-encompassing review covering foreign policy, security policy and defence policy. Uh, it's going to be called the Integrated Review. Um, and I suppose it's an important step, I suppose, primarily for two reasons. And I think one of them is that the UK hasn't had a strategic defence review since 2015. And it's usually the case that it happens on a five-yearly cycle. And we're going to get to that uh, in a moment. Um, and I think the second point is that with the UK leaving the European Union, there is a, an opportunity to think quite extensively about what that actually means. And I think we look at what the, the governments or governments of the last sort of three years, four years have been talking about, and they speak about global Britain, but there hasn't really been much meat on the bones about what that really means. And we know already that this review apparently is going to, it wants to look at the UK playing a more active role on the international stage, whatever that means. Uh, so I think, you know, it's, it's a good sort of um, navel gazing exercise in a way uh, to think about what actually do many of these things mean. I think from the perspective of the Remote Warfare Programme at the Oxford Research Group, you know, we've been looking at, as I say, remote warfare, the way in which we've been partnering with other states, uh, rather than sort of deploying large numbers of our, of our own troops. And I think this is a real opportunity to look at, well, how do we do that in the most effective way? What are the lessons of, you know, recent conflicts? Um, what lessons can we learn in terms of, well, how do you do protection of civilians when it comes to partnered operations? How are you building the capacity of these uh, different countries in a way that does actually meet some of the sort of uh, goals of the, that the UK has had over the last couple of years when it comes to building stability overseas. I think integrating all those lessons um, into this review will be really important from, from our perspective. Absolutely. And so maybe on that note, Josh, can you perhaps start off by telling us a bit more about the real purpose of these reviews that come around every five years? Well, the, the stated purpose of these reviews is to... Um, Look at the likely risks um, to UK national security and then implement the necessary policies to mitigate those risks. Um, this review, as, as Liam has said, is slightly, is, is slightly different because it is broader. Uh, you know, we're getting, you know, the Department of Biz and the Home Office and, and departments that you wouldn't normally expect to be involved in the review. We're also looking at, I mean, it's looking at serious and organised crime. So it's, it's, it's a very wide spectrum. Um, so normally these reviews, though, I mean, yes, they are set up. That is their principal purpose. But they also have a political purpose, which is to present governments 
defence and security policies in the best possible light, and you know this will be the same as as all the other ones. I would assume <laughs> in, that, in that sense. Um, and um, but I, there's some interesting language in in um, in what the prime minister announced uh, yesterday. Mm-hmm. You know the, the the idea of opportunities as well as risks, and that's potentially quite interesting. Potentially, uh, quite uh, you know quite. Uh, there's opportunities for the UK to do things that perhaps we haven't done in the past and do them in different ways. Now, whether that works out that way, who knows? But I think I think one of the things that uh, all reviews always emphasise is new technology. Yeah. I mean, they always talk about new technology. Uh, they always talk about um, how that will change everything, um, and you know that's 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 how they. That's, that's, I mean, and in that sense, it is similar. I mean, it is broader. There's some different language in there, but in a way, there's there's a there's a lot of similarities. Also, these reviews always take place immediately after an election, yeah. and there's a debate about the democratic accountability of having a review immediately after election rather than just before. Yeah. So, you know, but we'll come back to that. Yeah, maybe on that note, actually, can you tell us more about the political climate that those reviews take place in, or maybe ask in a different way, who are the personalities that are behind it? So in regards to, we've heard a lot, of, we've spoken about it before as well, There's, there seems to be quite a lot of political personalities behind the... Oh, yes. No, no, no. I think, I think, uh, well... Who are we talking about? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I couldn't imagine who you're talking about. Um, I mean, it, it's a, we have a very sort of uh, um, demonstrative government. They, they really want to <laughs> demonstrate a whole range of things. Yeah. And I think in this context, they want to demonstrate that they're going to be transformative. Mm-hmm. They're going to introduce new technology. They're going to use big data, et cetera, et cetera, to solve all these problems. You know, and, and, and all, more power to their elbow. Um, they have a sizable majority, which in the British political system means that, you know, as long as your party discipline is, is relatively uh, uh, structured, then you can... You know, you, you, there's a lot of a scope to do all sorts of things. Mm-hmm. And the, the interesting thing about this government is they've already demonstrated that they can ignore some of the traditional constraints that British governments feel uh, feel that they are under. Um, and all of these constraints are usually unwritten, so they can just rip them up um, if they want. And, and in, so, so they may be doing some quite radical things. Uh, and uh, don't forget also that traditionally... Um, uh, you know, right-wing governments can do things that look very left-wing mm-hmm. and vice versa. So you may see some really interesting, you know, uh, work done on remote warfare. I mean, I, the report you guys have done on, on fusion is, I know, is, is reverberated around Whitehall. So, you know, we'll see whether actually you get Dominic Cummings knocking on your door saying, mm-hmm. come in and, mm-hmm. and talk to us. I mean, I think what was interesting, I don't know what, what you think about this, but there did seem to be a very open commitment for wider consultation with this review. Uh, and I mean, we, we were discussing this in our, our, our sister podcast, if you like, the Westminster Roundup, um, and whether this you know, is only wider in, the, in the relative to what the consultation was in 2015 or with the mini STSR. I mean, and one of the, the things that we've been looking at, and there's been a lot of talk around in the media that the 98 review was going to be sort of the blueprint when it comes to a wider consultation mm. and I actually was looking through in preparation for this this podcast looking at the the foreword that George Robertson uh, wrote for the 98 review and he sort of he, you're absolutely right you know he talks about technology is like his race ahead mm. 
and that you know there's going to be potentially systematic attacks on, on computer networks. I mean, the terminology is slightly different today, talking more about cyber. But uh, yeah, it, it's interesting how maybe this 98 review is going to be sort of that was very transformational. Wanted to be very transformational, sort of moving beyond sort of the Cold War kind of um, perception of the world. And it seems like there is an effort potentially to be as transformational. But in re- respect to the UK's uh, position outside the, the EU, yes, I think I think that, that the ninety eight review did set out a course which was which was you know significantly different from from the traditional way in which Britain had structured its defence policy to take take the opportunities that the end of the Cold War had opened up and hadn't really been followed up by by the previous administration. Mm. Um, of course, whether that was actually implemented is a whole other. Thing. But, um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I do, I do take your point. Um, and the consultation process was certainly far more open than mm-hmm. than the 2010 or the 2015 review. Um, and I was, uh, I was at the corner of a table in King Charles Street for one of those uh, consultations. And the thing about those consultations is. On the one hand, you know, you get a lot of very bright external people yeah, yeah. in the room and you get some really good ideas. Mm-hmm. How many of them, I mean, I'm not sure how many of them ended up in the review. And then, of course, you know, th- th- there is this view that um, uh, there's an old Whitehall view that you never um, open a consultation until you worked out what you <laughs> the results are going to be. Yeah. Um, but on this one, I, you know, the, the, again... You look at Dominic Cummings's uh, writings and, and some of the other people involved in this, and you think actually, no, they really do want to challenge the establishment, and um, that's why they want to bring in, in external uh, experts, and, and, and that's uh, that's to be encouraged, I would suggest. Mm-hmm. Um, question is, well, firstly, how how do you select those external experts? Yeah. And you know, there's there's. Uh, and, and that also, I think, so for instance, when it comes to remote warfare, you know, you do want to look at the people who really understand what's been happening, mm. what's been going on, yeah. and, you know, what, and, and the, I think one of the problems that, that, um, bringing external experts can bring is they, they are, you know, they have these ideas about technology and they have these ideas about new ways of working, which in the end actually are just unachievable. They yeah, can't yeah, be done. Um, but nevertheless, I mean, let's see. Let's see how they do it. Um, let's see how how it goes. It is a very broad scope of mm. of uh, you know the sorts of things they want to do. Yeah, it's a really broad scope of stuff. Yeah, I mean, that in itself is a challenge for consultation, isn't it? Because mm. no doubt there are going to be complaints from some groups that they're not consulted. But how does a government ensure that there's effective consultation internally? among all the different departments, you know, making sure that fusion works, that yeah, departments with different cultures, different languages, different priorities speak to each other uh, and can work together to put forward this new uh, national security approach or national, new foreign policy approach. Um, and whether that, that, that's going to be a challenge, isn't it, for, for the government mm. um, to... Because they're, they're, they're equally, usually... The, someone like Rusi or Chatham House is sort of very much established kind of voices on these things would be consulted and then others would complain well that you're just sort of consulting to the converted um, so I think it is going to be a challenge to get that consultation right but also make sure as you say that that's fed in in an effective way because it, it, it's probably quite a daunting task for any government to face that wide consultation Absolutely. 
And I think especially as well as we see already rumors of not only disagreements between the different departments, but also within departments of the MOD having different <laughs> that are all arguing about what what's actually going to be in this review. And so having that on top of all these external groups saying we'd like to be involved and we have a lot of knowledge that we've built over the years, can you please be part of the process? So it is a lot of actors trying to get together in one room, definitely. Yeah, especially in a six-month turnaround. Yeah, it's very short. Well, what do you think about that? I... Um, I no, my, my experience of, of these sorts of reviews is always how we can do this in six months. Yeah. We never do. Um, and, and it, you know, it's complex and it's difficult. Um, and, it, and also all these reviews and this, this, the structure for this review in terms of how they make the decision looks pretty similar to previous reviews, which is they will gather all the, you know, do all the analysis, come up with some recommendations. Um, and then the people who are actually going to make the decision are a relatively small number of people. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, the problem with that is those small number of people won't be engaged in the in the work. And they'll mm-hmm. get this document and they'll think, no, that, that's not what I want. And they'll <laughs> say, go away and do, do yeah, it differently yeah. for whatever reason. Um, so they do tend to always extend longer than, than people think. So mm-hmm. we'll, we'll see. I mean, uh, it's... It, this is a government who's who does have a you know they're they're ideologically uh, uh, in a different place to any previous government I've ever seen. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, they are not traditional Tories. I mean that's very clear. Um, what what I find fascinating about them is that they have this blend of you know quite evident libertarianism. I mean the, yeah uh, you, you see it in. Uh, a lot of the published works they members of the cabinet have written before they got into the cabinet, and you, you see it in some of the statements. You see it in this sort of emphasis on free trade as the sort of almost the pinnacle of what Britain should be about. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, uh, and yet, they've also come to power on the wave as a, of a fairly you know populist nationalism, which. Um, how do, how do you merge those two different strands of ideology? Yeah. And that, yeah. that's going to be a challenge for them, I think. We'll, we'll yeah. see how it goes. I mean, you can always see that, can't you, with the, the, the budget. There are constraints about what they're thinking is acceptable to do, but in a way that's not sort of contradicting the, I suppose, what they've been talking about for the last nine years about getting the deficit down and yeah. everything else, but mm. also understanding that they've, they, they very much seem to believe that these votes are borrowed in the yeah. North, don't they? And, and they want to appeal to them through spending. Uh, which puts the Conservatives in a very difficult position because, as I say, it sort of goes against everything that they've sort of been peddling for the last nine years. Um, so it's going to be interesting how that affects sort of political discourse over the next decade, I think. Absolutely. And so if you two were to write the integrated review, what would be your main focus for each of you? <laughs> <laughs> wow. That is, that's, a, yeah. <laughs> that's, a, that's a big question. Um, I mean, I suppose from our perspective... I just want to talk about one issue, and I think that is is around the the consultation. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think, for me, the the greatest aspiration for this review is that they do consult more widely than they have done in in the previous um, reviews. And I think, you know, speaking to uh, the the 98 review, I think that's a good basis for broader consultation. Uh, I think if you look at the the Modernising Defence Programme, the uh, National Security Capabilities Review, there did seem to be a lack of uh, engagement. And I think also 
We've seen sort of mood music, and, and Megan, you were at the event at Rusi last week with the launch of the Strategic Command, mm-hmm. replacing the Joint Forces Command, where they did talk about you know the role of special forces, and you, you know this is an issue that we bang on about all the time. Yeah, right. um, but there is clear evidence that, for example, special forces have been increased, uh, deployments have been increasing over the last decade. Uh, and I think, you know, given James Heapy, the, the Minister for the Armed Forces, speech the other day talking about we need to think differently about how that capability is deployed in the future. Uh, it, it seems peculiar that he's able to get up in front of a crowd at Rusi and talk about special forces, but then MPs in the House of Commons don't have a, a forum for, for talking about special forces. And I think also looking at the commitments that were made in the 2015 SDSR about increasing spending uh, on special forces, among other things, uh, for uh, around two billion. Uh, looking at well, how has that worked? Uh, there's also been discussions about changing the Royal Marines, making them less like the Army, and perhaps creating a, a, a new unit which is effectively special forces. There's no public discussion, no political discussion about that, but it's already being steamrolled. So I think there are obviously that's a, that's a small part of the UK's uh, foreign policy, but I think there are important elements in terms of our work. And then the last point I'll, I'll make is that I think we really need to have a really thorough discussion about what our values are and how they are balanced with our national security interests. Because I think there is there is a tendency, or there has been a tendency over the last couple of years, if not the last couple of decades, for the UK to sort of pander to the rafters about certain issues, appearing that it is, you know, really pro-human uh, rights and pro-democracy around the world, but then doing things that completely undermine that. You know, the response to the, um, the, the, the um, Russian attack in Salisbury in comparison to the response to the murder of Jamal Khashoggi by one of our closest partners was quite stark. And I think we have to be clear, if we are going to be uh, global Britain, if we are going to be a force for good in the world, which I think the government says it wants to be, then there has to be concrete examples of how that's going to happen in reality. And of course, crises happen and there are challenges and foreign policy is messy. Uh, But I think we need to be a little bit more thorough in how we go about really upholding this so-called global Britain and who we are as a nation. (laughs) Well, uh, no, I mean, I I think the, the issue of values is always one of those central things which we never really properly define um, and maybe we will this time around I don't know I mean I I, uh, I think what there's there's three things that, that um, uh, I would like to see the, the review address one is um, uh, the issue yeah, is, is following up the report you did on, on fusion doctrine yeah. I want to see how they're going to do that effectively in a timely fashion there are, everybody knows the obstacles. There are already some examples in the system that, that for particular regions, I think, which maybe provide a, a broader model. We need to iron out all of those, you know, the cultural issues, the fiscal accountability stuff, all of yeah. that stuff is not, yeah. it's not rocket science. It can be done. Um, the second one, I mean, it's, I mean, I, I do take your point about the different responses between what the Saudis did and, and, um, allegedly did um, and what the Russians definitely did Um, but I I am concerned I am concerned about our uh, our 
I don't think we are prepared as a as a nation for the impact, um, the ongoing impact of Russian and Chinese information and influence activities, mm. both here in the UK, but also I think in Africa and in other parts of the world. Because yeah. whenever you go to any of these parts of the world, you see very active involvement and you know maybe you know some of the some of the things the Chinese are doing in Africa you've got to say well you know that's a good thing um, bugging the uh, headquarters of the organization of African Union team maybe not but you know, we need to think about this and we need yeah. to take we need we need to be active yeah on this and then finally the, the thing that I, I really hope they do but I I'm not going to hold my breath is they need to really look at climate change as a national mm. security issue. You cannot move now in in the Ministry of Defence for for senior people saying this is a national security issue. You know, the the flooding that you know, there's a whole range of different um, negative impacts on the UK that come from climate change. And uh, you know, it's refugee flows. There's a whole bunch of things, and we really need to address that as a national security issue. So that's those are things I'd like to see. And would that be quite revolutionary? In terms of thinking about security, having that climate element? No, not at all, really. Um, if you look at the work of the development concepts, defence, oh God, well, I can never remember what it's called. DCDC, DC, there That's the one. Yeah, that's <laughs> one. Yeah. Um, their global strategic trends document has been yeah. highlighting that for the last two decades. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's. it's we, we and and you know most most people in 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 mod who think long term always yeah. recognise that, and it's about saying right there is a reason you know there is a very pragmatic very important reason why we need to think about it as well as all the other issues but it it, it does impact on our on our security. That makes a lot of sense. I think maybe going back to your second point as well about mm. remote warfare in regions that we don't think about very often, like Africa. Mm-hmm. I think it's really important to note that even as we see this focus on great power competition it's more likely that the UK will continue to phase Russian and Iranian-backed allies in the Sahel and in the Horn of Africa and in Syria rather than in the Baltics. Yeah. Um, and there are, there are these challenges to actually having a full-on war. So it seems more likely to continue to be through partner integrations. And so learning the lessons of the last two decades and trying to apply that to how we're going to continue to go to war is quite important. I, th- I think you're actually right. And I think, I think you guys have pointed out... Um, that actually, when it comes to the, the Russians, you know, we're far more likely to meet them mm-hmm. in somewhere like Syria and somewhere like that. And, and one of the things I hope the review does is actually really look very carefully at the Syrian experience. Yeah. And, and we should not be afraid to say we got it wrong, but we must we must actually look at how the Russians have done what Absolutely. they've done. And it's a complex operation, and it's not simply about what they've done in Syria, but how they've influenced everybody around Syria mm-hmm. and, and across the world to look at to, 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 to see Syria in a different way and Absolutely. we have to we have to consider how that impacts on our security going forward well, on that point it's quite interesting because the, the new chair on uh, of the defence committee Tobias Elwood has been quite critical of the UK's inadequate response in his view to mm. the crisis in, in Syria mm. and he talks a lot about the um, the sort of hangover from Iraq Meaning that there is significant political risk aversion when it, aversion when it comes to um, you know the UK being able to or other nations being able to deploy force overseas, mm-hmm. and I suppose he would say that the fact that we weren't able to perhaps launch a significant military operation in Syria meant that uh, we weren't able to be as impactful. Now mm-hmm. I suppose we would probably potentially challenge. 
the idea that you would have resolved that through greater military force, mm. uh, learning all the lessons from previous campaigns. But I wonder what, what specifically would have been the alternative, um, given that I think this is still something that you know ministers, politicians are grappling with in terms of, well, if we can't use... We can't deploy our own forces on the ground, and we know that actually there are distinct challenges with looking like an occupying force. But if we then engage through partners, there are clear challenges of doing so. You're working with, you know, corrupt, often corrupt regimes, mm. weak security partners. Um, what what is the what is the answer? You know, this is this is a I think a challenge that perhaps also should be part of mm-hmm. yeah. of the review about how how do you get remote warfare right because in principle it makes sense that you empower local actors right but it has to be done in a responsible way uh, and there's evidence that it's not being done in a responsible way so what is it's not necessarily that we need uh, more military resources but it's how we're applying diplomacy how we're deploying development aid all these different things which links back to that fusion argument sometimes I think we, we learn the wrong lessons and we think, well, oh, well, that didn't go well because we didn't deploy enough troops. But actually, it was a failure of diplomacy mm-hmm. as much as it was a military operation. I think many people in the military will actually say that the, the counter Daesh campaign, for example, was a successful mm-hmm. military operation. It's been politically terrible, but uh, militarily, they might argue that it was an effective campaign. Uh, well, I, I think they would. Tough questions. But... No, no, no. <laughs> I mean, uh, and they're very important, very important questions because... Um, it's you know the 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 traditional uh, military response to a conflict is um, yes you know deploy more force um, and but more and more people in the military appreciate that's not the case and yeah. you will find you know a lot of the a lot of the senior military officers now um, who've been in it who were who served in Afghanistan would say yes yeah, a failure of diplomacy mm. no but the, I think I mean for one of the issues about working with partners which is always. I mean, you're the experts in this area, but it's always struck me that, you know, there you are, you're working with a partner and they have all these issues about corruption yeah, or yeah. human rights abuses. And these are not things that the traditional soldier can teach one of their counterparts in a foreign country. You need a much more comprehensive mm-hmm. package, that, that you know, that fusion approach. Yeah. But I think it needs to go beyond just DFID and the FCO. We need to start, you know, the, the Ministry of Justice mm-hmm. sends British judges yeah. all over the world all the time how do they coordinate the, that work yeah. with the work of the defence engagement team or the work of the FCO or the work of defence? Um, or we, we need to look really carefully at London as a financial centre and the way in which corruption um, you know, does seem to be associated with London. Now, that's maybe unfair, but that's definitely... I think there's good evidence there's, for that. Yeah, there is good evidence <laughs> yeah. for it. Yeah. And therefore, the more we can think about... New, well, I mean, it probably will involve new legislation, but we need to think about that in a much more uh, coordinated way because at the moment, unexplained wealth orders, we've only done one, and they're certainly not being... You know, it's a purely sort of domestic criminal yeah. thing that we're doing. Yeah. We should be looking at that in a much more holistic sense. We should be looking at how we um, how we manage the, the process, these processes of corruption so that we, we can identify them and at, at the right moment respond to whatever con- whatever findings come from the country where, where they came from to mm-hmm. say, can you send them back, for yeah, instance. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and, and the same with human rights. How you educate a military that is not used to human rights law, yeah. it's not going to be done in a six-month deployment. It's going to be done over 20 years. Mm-hmm. It's going to be an entire cultural shift. 
um, for that military to start respecting, you know, mm-hmm. doing protection of civilians in, in the way that we wish to do it. And, and you have to think long term. And above all, that's the thing about fusion that I think will be the key to its success is you say, right, this is a 20 year program. Yeah. We need to think far, far, much, much more longer term yeah. than, than yeah. we have. And in, in, the, in the context of remote warfare, I would, I would suggest that actually there is a high degree of cross-party consensus about the sorts of things we need to do. I don't think mm-hmm. there is... Uh, we, can't, we can't let the old argument of, oh, it's only five years and we can't think about yeah, the future. Yeah. To, to, we can't let that pass. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And we don't do that in other areas of policy. We shouldn't do it in fusion. And I suppose, actually, that's one of the reasons why... And I know this is something that happened in the 98 really, but thinking about what the, the public think yeah. about defence as well. You know, there's always this discussion that, well, you don't win votes with defence. But if, you, if we do want... Um, if, if to be successful we have to have this long term approach then you're going to have to have public buy in uh, so that they understand and actually awareness that we are deployed in these particular countries for X reasons because I don't think there is sufficient understanding either of, of you know some of these places we're engaged I mean if you spoke to the Tom Dick and Harry on the street and said by the way do you know that we're going to Mali uh, to, to deploy and part of the MINUSMA mission and they're probably about well, what's MINUSMA I don't know where's Mali you know so I think it's also about and of course, yes, there are obvious challenges with educating the, the public. I acknowledge that. Uh, but um, I think there is an argument for, you know, if politicians are complaining about, well, there's too much risk aversion, it's actually well, understand what the public think Absolutely. as much as you can uh, and get buy-in from Parliament as well about, and I know, Josh, you've said that there's a largely cross-party, cross-party consensus, and I, I do agree with that. Uh, but I think that's also a, a consideration that should be um, thought about in this review. I, I, I couldn't agree more, but, but, but <laughs> I think the challenge of educating the public yeah. isn't as great as some people seem to think. I, the general public, uh, you know, they understand stuff. They, you know, they, they can grasp complexity. Mm. They, they get that. Um, and I, I think it's, a, it's merely a question of us being more explicit yes. yeah. and no, more defined. In, you know, okay, why are we sending British yeah. troops in harm's way to Mali? What is the purpose? How does it relate to UK national security? Yeah. Now, all three of us in this room could come up with a rationale, mm-hmm. but actually it's the government that's got to do yes. that. Um, and, then, and so one of the things that I think would be really great to see come out of this review, and I say this at every review, and no, you know, it <laughs> never happens, and I, I'm sure it never will, which is <laughs> that you take both the review itself and the funding streams mm-hmm. uh, that support the implementation of that review, and you take both of those uh, documents and you put them to a vote in Parliament. Um, you, you, you get the select committees to look at them, they make their recommendations, and then you stick it, you know, you, you give MPs a chance to vote mm-hmm. on it so that, so that Parliament is committed. Yeah. Um, and I, I you know, I, we, we, you know, it's the People's Parliament. So <laughs> that's. That should be, okay. should be fine. Yeah. Makes sense. Yeah. <laughs> especially the funding. Yeah. Especially yeah. the funding. I mean, the other thing about reviews <laughs> is follow the money. Mm. Always follow the money. Yeah. Uh, oh, you, which you can't because they never release the funding figures mm-hmm. until years later. But that's what that's what a lot of the internal discussions mm-hmm. will be about. Um, yeah. Absolutely. So I think I'll go on to the final question. So what are you worried that the 2020 review will leave out? Is there anything in particular you worry that this won't be included in the review? 
I think I think to to Josh's point, in a way, it's not necessarily that something's not. I mean, obviously, we want them to consider the implications of remote warfare and take all our reports and you know mm-hmm. raise our profile. It'd be fantastic. <laughs> uh, but I think I think what I don't want to see is what happened with the previous the mini review, which was I know that it was slightly different context, but it became a debate around money. In a, in a very un, unuseful debate around money as well, because you know there was this push from the National Security Advisor, Sir Mark Sedwell, now Cabinet Secretary, and double hatting uh, as a, the National Security Advisor, that it wasn't going to be about money. It was just well, what are the you know an assessment of the threats, right? How have the threats changed? Um, and of course, then there were, there were concerns that that meant that the MOD was going to lose out, that it meant there wasn't going to be any more money, that there'd be cuts, sort of moving figures around and money around rather than actually investing more in it. But I think what then happened was it became a discussion about, well, if you can uh, get additional funding, then that's great. And then we've achieved everything we need to achieve. Well, actually, I think what's good about this review, and I hope does happen, is that it's about what are our ambitions as a country and then how do we meet those ambitions with the available funding that we have? Now, mm-hmm. it might be the case, as I think is always the case with the UK, is that our ambitions outmatch how much money we've got to actually fund that ambition. Um, but I think that's, I don't want it to simply be about, well, more money's good, less money's bad, same money is also bad. And actually, then people just think, well, if you increase the, bu- the, the, the budget for MAD, then it's an achievement. Oh, you know, and similarly with FCO and DFID, I don't think it is. I think it's about also having an important discussion about what is the role of the Foreign Office, mm-hmm. uh, what should the budget be for the Foreign Office, and of course these difficult questions about what is the role of DFID. Should it be a standalone department? We need to get to the bottom of that because I don't think it's fair either to uh, NGOs uh, and DFID to have that sort of hanging in the balance. I think we need to be clear for, for after this review, as part of this review, what is the government's position on the FCO and DFID. Um, so I think that some of the issues that I would say are the challenges, the, the concerns I have about the, the sort of the way this review will go. And maybe if I can just jump in there and add as well, I think 2018 and the, the small review we saw, the mini review, also saw this complete, like, falling apart of fusion, where there was not a yes. single review, but the problems that their own, it became this very departmentalized mm. process, and that yeah, would be an issue as well, I think. Mm. Mm. What about you? What do you think is the main risk, Josh? Well, um, I think the main risk is that, um, that really that, that uh, um, they revert to emotion. Um, and I think one of the things that um, you see in, in reviews is they, you know, the, the end process and sometimes the internal processes are based upon emotion. We will have an aircraft carrier and often that debate isn't necessarily mm. based on reason. I, 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 I think there is a very good rational case for an aircraft carrier, but emotion yeah, is yeah, not yeah, yeah. good enough. We, you know, saying we want to be a force for good. Define what you mean by force. Mm-hmm. Define what you mean by good. Yeah, you know, we understand these arguments and explain yeah. it to people. You know, it is about the use of rationality. Um, and I think the other, I suppose, uh, and, and the and the big risk I see of, of uh, in this area is that there's an almost emotional response amongst um, certain people towards the issue of free trade and leaving the mm-hmm. EU. That somehow, just as Norman, uh, the great Norman Angel, who wrote The Grand Illusion, right in the round of the First World War, argued that warfare was going to be 
ended by globalization, by global trade. It's the same mistake that mm-hmm. was made by Nixon with China. He thought bringing China into the fold would make it somehow. That, that, that idea that globalization, the globalization of the international economy is going to make the world a peaceful place is demonstrably untrue. Mm-hmm. And the sooner we accept that and move on and look at other, you know, what we really need to do to make the world a more peaceful place better. Absolutely. Well, thank you very much for both of you. I think that was a great discussion. It was really interesting to hear both of your perspectives on this. No worries. So, thank, thank you. you very much. Thank you. Thank you very much to all the listeners for tuning in. We hope you enjoyed the discussion as much as we did. For those who want to read more in depth about the topics we covered, we put links to any research applications that we have mentioned in the episode notes. If you want to stay up to date with the Remote Warfare Program and the Oxford Research Group, you can subscribe by clicking on the button at the top of the page. You can also follow us on Twitter. Our handles are at orgyinfo and at remote underscore warfare. You can listen to all previous episodes of our podcast free of charge by following the link at the top of the page. We look forward to you joining us soon. Thank you.